turn if you will to Luke chapter 6 the last paragraph of this chapter if you grew up in Sunday school as I did you may have learned the children's song the wise man built his house upon the rock the foolish man built his house upon the sand and the rains came tumbling down that's our text this morning the parable of the wise and foolish builders but this is not just a children's Sunday school song this is Jesus conclusion to his sermon on the mount and it's his solemn word to us this morning let me read it it's a brief passage and it's perhaps well known Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. As we think through this simple uh, parable, let me just hang our thoughts on three points. The first is simply this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's the most basic confession of Christians everywhere. Jesus is Lord. Not, I'm okay, you're okay. Not, uh, I'm the captain of my fate and the master of my soul. But Jesus is the Lord. So it's important not to get the cart before the horse in this study this morning. Jesus is going to talk about obedience here. But if we talk about obedience before we talk about what it means to believe that Jesus is Lord, we create a false religion. So Jesus begins at the beginning with his disciples' confession of faith. Lord, Jesus is Lord. So in our discussion, let's begin again with the distinction between religion and the gospel. We've made this point several times, but let's make it again. There's a difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says your standing before God is based on your performance. If you keep the law, God will consider you righteous in his eyes. If you measure up, God will accept you. If you fail, you sin, you mess up your life, God is through with you. At least until you clean up your act and get your life together again. In one form or another, this is the teaching of all the religions of the world. And many people sitting in pews in Christian churches believe exactly the same thing, although we talk about God in terms of Jesus. But the performance idea for many is no different than any other religion of the world. But the gospel is radically different from that. Radically different from religion. The gospel proclaims you can never please God. You have never lived up to his demands. You have never kept his law well enough. In fact, if you've only broken one commandment, you are now a lawbreaker. Turning over a new leaf and trying to do better will not change you inside. 
You'll only continue to do the same things. Even if you were able to significantly improve yourself, you can never erase the sins of the past. The truth is we are spiritually dead without hope before God and unable to help ourselves. But the gospel proclaims that God loves sinners like you and me. And when we were totally incapable of pleasing God, God sent his son to do in our place what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus lived the righteous life we were supposed to live, but never could. And Jesus died the death we deserved to die under God's judgment against sin. And because God accepted Jesus living and dying in our place, God raised him from the dead. And he ascended into heaven where God made him the Lord of everything. Now Jesus freely gives to us right standing before his Father. So that God accepts us because of Jesus, not because we're good enough. And believing this to be true, we just simply abandon our hope in ourselves, abandon our imagined goodness before God, and entrust ourselves to Jesus, acknowledging he alone is our Savior. He is the Lord. That's the gospel. It's very different from religion. The gospel yields a life of obedience. Religion says if you obey, you will be saved. This is the gospel that the Apostle Paul explained in Romans 10. He says, therefore, I can testify about the Israelites that they are zealous for God. We might say they're devoutly religious. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Moses described in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. In other words, uh, you simply stand on your pitiful record. That's all you got. But Paul goes on, but the righteousness that is by faith says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. As the scripture says, everyone who trusts in him Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Christians believe in, rest on, and confess that Jesus is Lord. This has been the most simple and profound confession of Christians from the beginning. Christians have never thought themselves righteous enough to please God. Instead, we trust Jesus who's the righteous one. And because the Lord Jesus is our only hope, we don't forsake him. So that in the days of the Roman Empire, the early days of the church, Christians would be fed to the lions before they would change their confession and say, Caesar is Lord. For they knew their only hope was that Jesus, our Savior, is the Lord. This Christianity, this gospel is all different from the religions of the world. Religion is performance driven. God gives us what we earn. But the gospel is grace, pure grace. God gave Jesus what we deserved, our judgment, in order to give us what he deserves, his righteousness. By simply trusting and confessing him as Lord, we inherit all that the religions of the world strive in vain for, 
peace and acceptance before God. No wonder broken, hurting, sinful people come to Jesus. He offers hope. Now against that backdrop of that gospel, Jesus challenges then in this text his half-hearted disciples. In verse 46, why then do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Jesus is not suddenly turning the gospel on its head, saying now we have to earn our way after all. He's simply making a point of of the fact that we cannot claim that he is the Lord and rest in him for our right standing before God and then suddenly abandon him when he tells us what to do. You can't have it both ways. For you see, Jesus is not just concerned to save our souls. He is building a a, a holy people. He is building us into a new community. He's, He's making us a living sanctuary in which God dwells in the earth. And therefore, it's not all right for us to call him Lord and then go on disregarding the rest of his instruction. So Jesus confronts those who believe in him but won't obey him. And he confronts them with this vivid illustration of the wise and foolish builders, which brings us to our second point. Failure to obey the Lord invites ruin. Failure to obey the Lord invites ruin. Amazing how people want to deal with this parable. I've read a lot of books on this parable. Some people want to allegorize it. And the houses represent this, and The rain represents that, and the foundation represents this, and on and on they go, figuring out what everything represents. But it's not that complex. It's a pretty simple teaching, pretty straightforward. Jesus is teaching one thing here, the absolute necessity of not only knowing the truth that he had just spoken in the Sermon on the Mount, but the necessity of submitting to his lordship and doing the truth. Failure to obey the Lord, to do the truth, invites ruin. The illustration which Jesus uses is quite simple. Two men build similar houses in the same beautiful locale. I think perhaps they were building on that beautiful bluff on the west coast of Whidbey Island, you know, where it's way up above the water, where it drops off into the water every year a little bit more. Two houses, and they look really nice. Both are showcases, the delight of their owners and all their friends. But there's a crucial difference. One man dug down deep and laid the foundation on bedrock, and the other man didn't. We're not told why he failed to do so. Perhaps he was more concerned with the appearance than, than, than the substance. Perhaps he was in a hurry to finish. Perhaps he was short on money and wanted to make sure he had some money left for furniture and not waste it all on foundation. Perhaps he was ignorant of the basic principles of house building. Whatever the reason, he didn't do the truth in regard to house building. And apparently he got away with it. The two houses are complete. They're both beautiful. They look about the same. They both function well, they throw their parties there, they have their friends over, and everyone lives happily ever after until it begins to rain. And I mean rain. The rains came down and the floods came up. 
And then the unseen difference was revealed. Living here on the West Coast, we've seen these houses. We've perched on hillsides overlooking the water. We've, we've drooled over their beauty and beautiful days. Wish we could afford such a view. And then we've seen some of them on the news in the midst of the storms as they begin to slide down the hill, collapsing like matchsticks. Such was the fate of this beautiful house in Jesus' parable. So what was Jesus trying to teach us here? Jesus is talking about the difference between hearing or knowing the truth and doing the truth. It's not those who have heard or know or believe or can discuss or even teach Jesus' words, but those who do them who will stand. Doesn't matter how much you know about Jesus' words, failure to obey his word invites ruin. Now this is especially applicable, applicable to us because we are people in our culture who love appearances. What's inside or underneath the facade doesn't matter very much, but how it looks is really important. But this passage reminds us that ultimately appearances matter very little. What matters is substance, structure, sound foundation, doing the truth. And failure to do that, failure to obey the Lord, invites ruin. Now that failure to obey take has many faces. Some will shake their fist in God's face and, and mock and revile him and blatantly disregard everything he says and dare him to stop them. We see some of that around us. We know people like that, perhaps. And that kind of life is built on sand. It's inviting destruction. But others of us would never defiantly shake our fist in God's face. No, we love to hear God's truth, sometimes. And, 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 and we call ourselves Christians, and we're in church, except when it's inconvenient. And we know the Bible stories, and we agree with them, except the ones that are kind of hard to agree with. In fact, we're disturbed when we see a wicked man shaking his fist in God's face. But folks, we are the ones Jesus is addressing here. We who know and have heard and claim to believe his word. But after years and years and years of hearing and believing, is anything different? Has it made any difference? And what we do? You see, this is a more subtle kind of failure. Sim simply neglecting or postponing the practice of the truth. But the result's just the same. Failure to obey the Lord invites ruin. Dear people, this great truth with which Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount always shakes me a little bit. I fear for myself. I fear for many others. For I think professing Christians too often are building a house of cards. A house built on sand just waiting for the storm 
which will reveal all the shortcuts we've taken and all the rules we've broken and all of our disregard for God's word in our lives when it's really difficult, all of which we've covered up with this lovely facade of Christianity that we wear every Sunday. But God's word never fails. He says, whatever a man sows, he will reap. He who sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap destruction. In other words, failure to obey the Lord invites ruin. That's the second thing we need to learn. But there's one more thing from this parable, which brings us to our final point. Walking in obedience sustains us in trouble. Walking in obedience sustains us in trouble. I noted at the beginning that many of us grew up singing this song about this parable of Jesus. I know when our kids were little, they knew this song. Sometimes when we were driving down the road, we would sing kids' songs with them. One time when we were doing that, it, uh, it hit me how terribly the song that we have taught our kids, some of us, uh, distorts the truth which Jesus actually teaches here. If you know that little song, do you remember the last verse? The last verse goes like this. So build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. Build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the blessings will come down. The blessings will come down as the prayers go up. The blessings will come down as the prayers go up. Now that's a wonderful, nice thought, isn't it? It's just not what Jesus was teaching. Or I agree that our lives are to be built on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, although that's really not exactly the point here. He's talking about obedience, specifically. But the other half of that song is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is teaching. There abounds in our day a Christianity which says, if you will accept Jesus, all of life will be filled with wonderful blessings. You've heard people say this, as I have, I'm sure. Once my life was full of trouble, without direction, one calamity after another, then I accepted Jesus as my Savior, and everything has changed. Now I have a life full of blessings. No more trouble. No more pain. I'm, suddenly I'm successful in what I do. I feel so good. It's like being high on Jesus. But this text says the opposite. We see in verse 48, when the flood came, the torrent struck that house. And again in verse 49, the torrent struck that house. Matthew reports Jesus' words even more vividly than Luke does. In Matthew 7 we read, The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house. In both Matthew and Luke, the description of the storm is exactly the same for both houses. The storm tried to destroy the house built on the foundation of rock as much as it tried to destroy the house built on no foundation on the sand. The only difference was the structure of one which enabled it to stand. You see, we cannot say, if you will follow Jesus, all your trouble will cease. That's a lie. 
Your trouble may be just beginning when you start following Jesus. Christians get sick, hospitalized, paralyzed, suffer excruciating pain, and eventually die, just like everyone else. Christians lose their children, they get in car accidents, they fall off ladders, they, ladders, they accidentally drown. Christians have financial troubles, they lose their jobs, they get robbed, they have their homes burglarized. Christians get lonely and discouraged and depressed and offended. Christians have marriage troubles, disobedient, rebellious teenagers, and uh, cantankerous neighbors and impossible bosses. Christ does not promise to free us and relieve us from this whole spectrum of human maladies that everyone else experiences. On the contrary, this parable indicates we will inevitably encounter the same storms of life as everybody else. Nor does he promise he will relieve us of the agony of living in such a sad, fallen world where we groan under the curse. Not yet. Not yet. And that's not even to speak of the special trouble that comes to Christians because they confess Christ. So what does Christ promise us in this parable? If he doesn't promise that the storms won't come, what does he promise? That walking in obedience will sustain us in the day of that trouble. The life of obedience to Christ is the only adequate foundation for life as it really is in this world. Only those who practice Christ's word will be equipped to stand, to withstand, to continue to function in the midst of these common troubles. A life of disobedience, blatant or subtle, will eventually collapse under the pressure. I'm reminded of one of my very favorite illustrations. It's so simple, but it's so profound. In the fall, when the frost comes, the leaves begin to turn colors. Some are turned brown and ugly by the frost. Others are turned brilliant red and yellow and orange by the same frost. The difference is not the frost, but the leaf. And so trouble in life destroys one person, making him hard and bitter and resentful, causing him to hate God. But the person who walks in the way of obedience to Christ, by the same exact trouble, learns patience and faithfulness and perseverance and peace and hope and the ability to love other hurting people only the way of obedience will sustain us in trouble faith and obedience we always want to separate those two something to think what we believe in our hearts is really insignificant. It's what we do that matters. And such people turn Christianity into a moralistic religion that's just like all other religions, devoid of saving grace. But other people think that 
talking about what we ought to do. Well, that's just some kind of social gospel. All that really matters is what I believe in my heart. And such people turn Christianity into a meaningless word game, devoid of any real change. But Jesus rejects both of these tendencies. When he speaks of Judgment Day, he warns those who do great works in Jesus' name. But he says, depart, I don't know you. You never do me, really. But on another occasion, also speaking about Judgment Day, he warns those who confess great faith in Christ, but never feed the hungry and clothe the naked and care for the sick, that they're rejected for their lack of actions which show the grace they claim to know. You see, we can separate the concepts of faith and obedience for the sake of discussion, but in practice they are inseparable. The one who believes and confesses Jesus as Lord will act in obedience to him, putting his words into practice. So in our text today, we recall that the true Christian believes and confesses Jesus is Lord. But we also recall that failure to obey the Lord invites ruin, and only walking in obedience to the Lord will sustain us in trouble. Or as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, if I may paraphrase, we are saved by faith alone, by receiving and resting in Christ as our righteousness. Yet, faith is never alone in the person God saves. It is always accompanied by all other saving graces. It is never a dead faith, but a faith working in love. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, every one of us in this room knows more than we've done. We've heard more than we've practiced. And for some of us, Lord, it's a, it's, it's a crisis. We, we just enjoy hearing it. We like this familiar sound of the words of the faith. But as Al mentioned earlier, uh, in some people's lives, it absolutely makes no difference in how we live. So Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts and bring the gap, close the gap, and cause us to see that there's no such place to stand believing proclaiming Jesus as Lord and then not listening, not doing what you say. Oh Lord, keep us from turning this on our head, on its head and, and believing that it's by the doing that somehow we will earn our way. May we not lose sight of the gospel. But Lord, may we not take the beautiful, wonderful, good news of the gospel and distort it into a license to do what we please, dishonoring our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.